Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week under the radar, Holyoke students protesting a state takeover testing the test in Massachusetts schools, Common Core exams versus MCAS, and is Puerto Rico the new Selma? Later in the show, Boston's new poet laureate has been on the job for just about four months. We'll talk to Danielle LeGru-Georges about her passion for poetry. But first, joining me in the studio is Marcella Garcia, bilingual journalist and a regular contributor to the Boston Globe editorial and op-ed pages. Hi, Marcella. Hi, Callie. And Julio Ricardo Varela, digital media director for the Futuro Media Group, I can say it, and founder of LatinaRebels.com. Hello, Julio. Hey, Callie. (laughs) Well, let's get started. Um, I have been keeping an eye on the situation in Holyoke and the public schools because it's a big deal when a state decides to take over an entire school system. And that's exactly what the recommendation has been now from one of the the top state officials. The final decision has to be voted on, but um, it seems to me pretty clear that that's probably going to uh, be the choice. And this came from Education Commissioner Mitchell Chester, he said he was going to ask the board to take a vote on receivership. So, Marcella, what does this mean uh, for Holyoke? And and then we'll talk a little bit later about how students are very upset about this. Uh, yeah, I, I got to give you credit for that because you have been uh, staying on top of this. Obviously, the local papers, Mass Live and the Springfield uh, Republican, if that's what it's called, I mm. believe, uh, mm. they have obviously been covering it because it's in their own backyard. But we have a tendency to totally ignore Western Massachusetts mm. here in Boston. But it's a huge deal, like you say. Only Lawrence, the Lawrence uh, public school system, is uh, in current state receivership. And, and it's it's a big deal. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of opposition, like you say. But... I, I happen to see it as a, you know, and perhaps because I'm thinking of the uh, of the example or the progress that the Lawrence schools have been making, I tend to see it as a positive because by almost every single measure, almost every single academic measure in Holyoke is absolutely dismal. It's it's you know it, it's only uh, 5,500 um, students. 12 schools, 11 schools or so, two high schools. One um, high school is a vocational technical school, and it's it's horrible. Their, their graduation rates are absolutely granted. They have been making some sort of progress. The tendency is in the right direction, but the progress has not been, make, has not been made as quick as the education officials in the state uh, wish. So they, the, the expectation is that the Board of Education is going to vote either in April or in May after a comment, a public uh, comment period in which I'm sure there's going to be, again, a lot of opposition. A lot of the students are going to be voicing their concerns, the teachers in particular, because they're, they, they probably feel that, you know, they're going to be asked to reapply to their to their jobs. Longer school days mm-hmm. are probably going to be, um, you know, 
mandated. And then, you know, the, the, there's also the, the question of, you know, who is going to be leading the, um, the school system. There's a current superintendent there. Oh, and mind you, this is very important. Holyoke is only, it's the third um, largest in the state with the highest proportion of Latino students, only after Lawrence mm-hmm. and in Chelsea. So it's, it's worth mentioning, or it raises the question of, you know, two of the top three um, uh, districts in the state with the highest proportion of Latino students are, you know, under or potentially are going to be under you know, state receivership. That's that's pretty disappointing. And we should probably be looking at structural, you know, problems that are, for example, ELLs, you know, in English uh, language learners is also a huge deal. So, you know, it, it bears, um, uh, to, you know, n- noticing that perhaps it's time to finally change our approach to teaching English language learners. Now, before we, um, before I move away from you and get Julio's uh, take on this, let's talk about the evidence that Lawrence is doing better under mm. receivership. So graduation rates are better. They are. Uh, what else is happening there that, you know, gives rise to thinking that receivership is the way to go? Yeah, graduation rates are better. Um, the state, uh, the testing, it, it, you know, is, is producing evidence that there's progress there. Uh, and there's, you know, there's, that's, that's probably unquestionable. There's some areas that, you know, Lawrence schools, special education, and also Holyoke in special education is the worst in the state, for example. Uh, and Lawrence had been for a while. And, and in that area, you know, that is the one area that Lawrence has been um, not making a progress as, as, you know, as in any other area. But again, the tests, the uh, graduation rates, and I, I, off the top of my head, I don't have the numbers, mm-hmm. But there is evidence that, that that's the progress. And that happened in 2011, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, it's very, been a very it's, short it's period very of time. Recent. And right, that's yeah. because the law changed recently, too. Like before, um, you know, there wasn't that option uh, for the state to take over school mm-hmm. systems. But that's also, you know, what prompted the change. So, Julio Varela, um, the students and Marcella has made clear that this majority Latino students in the system uh, organized a walkout. Right. Um, I think it was about 50, right? Right. Some of the the school officials tried to urge parents and others to tell them, don't do that because they caught wind of it early. And they said, no, they wanted to make a statement about this. And I wonder what you think about that. Well, first of all, the name of the group is Los Rebeldes, (laughs) which means the rebels in Spanish. And being the founder of LatinoRebels.com, that that caught my that caught my eye. I kind of thought it. Yeah, was. you thought you. Were. <laughs> yeah. But you know, this has kind of been a common occurrence throughout the nation. If in where students are walking out, whether it's for I think in Denver, where they were questioning AP history and other places, I think people were surprised that these students would just walk out for whatever reason, saying you know this is not understanding what the real issues mm-hmm. are, but but the fact that they were speaking out. Now, the superintendent of schools in Holyoke, who's, I believe his name is Sergio Paez, mm. is, is saying that these students were influenced by strangers or people that were sort of influencing them. And there was a piece in uh, MassLive.com, which is doing, I mean, let's be real, that outlet does an incredible job in covering Western Massachusetts. Yes, it does. And so in Michelle Williams's peach piece for Mass Live, you have Paez saying that he's concerned about the safety of the students and strangers contacting them during the school day. That kind of freaks me out a little bit, considering that I live in Milton, Massachusetts, mm. and and Wednesday there was a lockdown in, mm. in, in the high school, and it made you know the local news. 
And this whole issue of like strangers in high schools kind of has been a very sensitive topic in Milton um, the last couple of days. But what I'm but gathering about this protest, you know, they they plan the protest to just say, like, something's wrong. Like, why are we being taken over by the state without really understanding sort of the issues? But it also speaks to sort of the structural community issues that are happening in Holyoke. Remember, you know, one of the points in looking at all this, this is a classic case of Boston being the dominant city in mm-hmm. a commonwealth. So when you look at education funding, and I've I've been involved in education in my previous life, you know, pre-journalist or between journalism mm-hmm. jobs and understanding about state funding. And it really is about advocacy. You know, you don't hear you know, you, you see the, the high profile Boston city schools with superintendent searches and, you know, innovation hubs and all this other great thing. And Marty Walsh is talking about how schools, schools, schools. But we're forgetting the other communities in this in this commonwealth of what Marcella said, the predominantly Latino, mm-hmm. um, predominantly, you know, their socioeconomic issues. Having worked in these districts and I used to work in these districts in the 90s and in the early 2000s as an editor for textbooks, I also have to, you know, we have to call out the accountability of the leadership as well Mm. about the community. Why has this been such a ongoing problem in predominantly Latino neighborhoods in the Commonwealth in in, uh, cities and communities in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts? There's a part of, it it speaks to the structural issue of, of, you know, superintendents getting positions in public education and then all of a sudden it's like it's the only opportunity you have as a job. So then you get it and you're like, hey, I'm, it's kind of cushy. And, and, you know, so there's a Are lot you suggesting of, they don't know the community. I, I, I'm suggesting that sometimes leaders in these communities aren't putting the community in front of their own ambitions sometimes. Mm. And I'm not suggesting that this is the case in Holyoke, but there has been a pattern where I went to in Worcester or in Lawrence previously or in other predominantly Latino um, communities in in the Commonwealth, even in parts of Boston. So I think there's an issue about education reform from a bigger structural issue Mm -hmm. that no one's really talking about. And and so when the Commonwealth comes in and says, you know what, we have to take this over – it's going to force you to make decisions. And if, you know, 50 kids protesting, I'm sure they've never done this before. So it kind of freaks people out. Yeah, yeah. Marcella, I wonder if, um, as they're debating this and allowing for public comment, and I assume the students' comments would be considered public, but I'm very interested in see what the parents want to have happen. And Julio is probably correct in saying there's a, you know, a, a top-down issue always of, you know, bigger reform. I mean, we're struggling through that all the time. There's reform right. issues right. that are on the table being discussed uh, with regard to public education. But always what comes back to is, um, the, but what happens to these kids right now? Yeah. Right, right now, <clears throat> right. they are not being served. Exactly. And exactly. they don't get what they need. And right. so they're, by virtue of aging out, really, they you know get pushed out into the yep. world, probably don't graduate. That's why those graduation rates are so low. And then there they are. Yeah. Stuck. Yeah, it, mm. it's true. I mean, and, and you're right. Uh, local communities are, are always going to be fighting for local control, and they're going to be opposed uh, to state control because that's just how it is. And and especially, uh, like Julio is saying, you, you, you know, you insert into the debate that regional divide that's always there, you know, Boston versus, you know, Western Massachusetts. Some of the things that this, these kids were saying, again, they are valid, but they also felt a little 
generic in the sense mm-hmm. that you don't know us, you, you're going to come and tell us. And again, it's valid. I, yes. I understand that. But it, it also, you know, it, the thing is that the status quo is not working. And these kids are not being served, like you say. Um, and I, the parents probably, you know, I, I, I was looking at a video that was on YouTube about, you know, the, some of these parents or there's a group uh, already of uh, activists and community, you know, people mm-hmm. that, you know, came together to sort of like save the schools or uh, to advocate against uh, state receivership. And I think one of the most spoken ones was asked to leave the meeting because she mm-hmm. was being really, really loud and, and really um, adversarial. Her point was, uh, which I think is valid too, but it doesn't, you know, doesn't uh, go to the heart of the issue, which is the kids. Mm-hmm. She was saying, oh, you know, our, our our home values are going to plummet. Nobody's going to want to come here if they know that we don't have a say in our schools. Oh, and and, and sit, mm-hmm. it's it's another way of looking at yeah. it. But but still, you know, there's all these concerns, and we're going to be hearing about about all of that. But at the end of the day, it's really about you know performance. And and this this um, the uh, state commissioner say some said something interesting. Which is, you know, he said, I've been I've been watching and observing this school district for seven years and it's not progress at the rate that, you know, we we needed to. And 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 so something has to be done, Uh, whether it is the right thing or not, you know, and and it will depend a lot in in the direction. Like I know that. um, So the Board of Education um, commissioned a study, a report. Right. And this report was very, very positive about the superintendent and his office, about the changes that he, he's been implementing. So I, what I want to see is, you know, whether, you know, if, he, if it goes into state receivership, who is going to be taking right. over? Who is going to be named superintendent? Is he going to be allowed to stay? Is he going to be, you know, right. allowed to see his, um, you know, reforms uh, pushed through? That'll so, be very interesting yeah, to see. Yeah, so... Well, we'll I have to say that this feels to me already that it's leaning toward receivership. I don't see what public comment yeah. would reverse it. Right, right. I also want to point out, and I can't remember all the fine details, maybe one of you can, but you recall there was a study done a couple of years ago looking at the black and Latino students in Boston yeah, public schools sure. and trying to ask the question, why was there a struggle? Right, so yeah. now we're talking the two about... The two-track system, remember? Yeah. Right. Two two, yeah, so mm-hmm. we're talking about, you know, two communities, right. one in receivership already, the other likely to go, and then what's happening in Boston. And there's obviously some struggles around trying to figure out what is needed for these students in the public school environment. And I just recall that one of the biggest issues that came up really was about poverty. Yes. Yeah, it had to totally. do as an underlying... Yes. That's, that's what structural... Pro- yeah. Right. So there's a, we're talking decades and decades yeah. and decades yeah, of structural right. issues that, you know, there's there hasn't been a microscope on these communities. Let's be real. Like, mm-hmm. when, you, when you go to the state house and when you see the coverage... In, in, in the paper of record of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, which is the Boston Globe, mm-hmm. you don't see the statehouse. Let's talk about Holyoke schools. Yeah. You talk, you see Bo- so I think there's a lot of factors in play. I also believe that the community, from what I've read and what I've followed, and I, you know, having friends out there, and you know, we, we're red, Latino Rebels is red mm-hmm. out in Western Massachusetts, that there's sort of an awakening, a reawakening, and, a, and, and sort of a pride in the community that I, I don't think it, – it, it's, it's sort of been silent. Mm-hmm. And now I think it's – now when you're challenged, people are starting to speak up. Mm-hmm. And I do think that that's good, but it's really hard to battle – Years and years and years of what's happened previously to be yeah. like, okay, now let's figure it out because right. in the end, these kids, you know, 
they're in the school for maybe two or three years in high school, it's not going to get fixed immediately. And I just want to add has to happen now. Yeah, yeah. No, I just want to add they have to work on two tracks now and in the future. Exactly. Right, mm-hmm. um, Lawrence, mm-hmm. it tripled the level one schools since so. the, since receivership. I just wanted to add. That. So that's why I'm that's what I'm yeah. saying. So there, there's clear evidence that there's improvement evidence. is made yeah. right now, yeah. Yeah. which is what has to happen. All right, well, let's move on to another big uh, education story, <laughs> which has everybody all in a twist um, in general, and that's here in uh, Boston and. <laughs> across the state, um, something called PARC, that's P-A-R-C-C, which stands for Partnership for the Assessment of Readiness for College and Careers. But a lot of people may know it as Common Core. Right. Now, for some of us without kids, maybe you've heard Common Core be thrown around <laughs> by politicians who are anti, anti, anti Common Core for a lot of reasons. But now it started. It started mm-hmm. last yes. week. Um, so it's going to be implemented in some schools and it's going to be compared to the MCAS, which is already there. And this is about evaluating the progress of students to absorb the information that they've been taught. Some of the issues that we hear a lot about these kinds of accountability tests, testing to the test, teaching Mm -hmm. to the test, rather, Mm -hmm. and focusing more on that than actual learning have come up again with this, and a number of people are uncomfortable. And Julio, I know you got something to say about this. (laughs) No, the reason I have something to say about this is because I was, when I was in educational publishing, I was involved in the development of the Common Core Standards, and a lot of people don't know what that means. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to really try to crystallize it in a minute about... I'd say about six or seven years ago, give or give or year, you know, give or take a year, the National Governors Association, which is sort of the association of basically what it is, all mm-hmm. these governors in in the states, they decided to work together with a consortium of education reform leaders led by David Coleman, who is now the president of the College Board, and that's really important that mm-hmm. I make that that distinction. Mm-hmm. That they decided that we need to have a set of national curriculum standards. So basically, after years of discussion and sort of redoing everything, I believe right now it's 47 states out of 50 in the United States use these common core standards. And basically what it is is is, it's sort of these bigger goals that prepare you for college, college readiness goals. So the Commonwealth state of Massachusetts has implemented the common core. But one thing that's really important is that any state can can use its own – can change the Common Core standards by 15 percent. So if you want to adapt it to your state standards, you can put 15 percent into the Common Core. Now, people that follow Massachusetts, we are at – you know, we are one of the top states when it comes to public education and student performance. So in a way, from the big bell curve of the 47 states, we're at the top. We're probably at the top, I mm-hmm. believe. If not, we're, we're number two. So there's this argument – that the Common Core within the Commonwealth of Massachusetts is going to be dumbing down the standards and that you take an assessment like PARC, which is a computer-generated assessment. My son took it a couple of days ago. Did he do well? He did well. He had his headphones (laughs) and he had to take – he had his open response. He said it was cool. He's in sixth grade. But it's a different type of test. It's not like MCAS where, you know, you're filling in the bubble. And and, – and outside of Massachusetts, there's a lot of national controversy about the Common Core because people think it's, it's you know, government control of, of children's education. But in fact, it's tied to trying to prepare children for college so that when they get to college, they can actually write 
I don't know, a persuasive essay. Right. You and know, you are tested on, you know, those true and false things, if for lack of a better description, as well as then you have to explain why. You actually have to so think. So you have to think, you have yes. to do some of that. But yet and still, the argument is that the teachers are still... Marcella in a position of, of of teaching to the test. And there was a lot of resistance about MCAS. And by the way, to be clear, so we got some schools doing this Common Core and then some schools doing MCAS. And that's deliberate, by the way, yes. um, on the part of Massachusetts. I want to uh, let let you listen to something that was said by the Massachusetts Secretary of Education, James Pizer, on BPR last week. Um, he was talking about a number of issues, but this is how he describes Common Core, also known as PARC. And it's basically a big experiment. It's a test of the tests to figure out which one is producing the most valuable, the most useful information, which one is setting the standard at a level we need in order to remain competitive. Charlie Baker in 2010 testified against Common Core. He told us he was the only um, person who testified against Common I think Core that is at that correct. hearing. I think yeah. that is correct. Um, so he comes into this with some skepticism about whether we've taken the right step. Um, Secretary Pizer went on to say that despite his criticism that uh, Governor Baker is open to see, you know, what the results are between these these two testing um, uh, choices and, and we'll see what how that happens. The thing about uh, the Common Core is that you're tested a lot. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's constant. Again, I say there's a pushback from teachers. There was a letter signed by a number of teachers in uh, fourth grade, um, looking at fourth grade teachers, third grade teachers, uh, raising all of the issues that some of which I've raised now and being concerned about how much time they lose, Marcella, mm-hmm. in mm-hmm taking to prepare the students for the test, and then they try to get back to the actual work. And the numbers are kind of shocking. Yeah, the way I see it, I think Mm -hmm. the the Park and Common Core, you know, it's partly really, really good and partly really, really, you know, bad or in the wrong direction, which is to test, you know, more. I I think it it should be the complete opposite. You know, I I agree with um, my colleague, Joanna Weiss, who, who wrote a piece about Park and the Common Core, and and really, it's it's very complicated. Of the Boston Globe, of the Boston Globe, yes. yeah, uh, mm-hmm. opinion pages. It's really complicated if you don't have kids. So I, yeah. I, I really struggle to understand that because it, it, it matters. It matters how how um like you say the Common Core of the, the Park test rather. It, it asks you to to go through your rationale of getting to that right. to that answer. And I, you know, I think that that's valuable. But also, it should be done less. It should be the test should be. And, and again, you know, just listen to to the Secretary of State, um, the I'm sorry, the Secretary of Education. Uh, how how are they going to compare Park versus MCAS? If they wouldn't it be comparing apples to oranges, the results. So well, if it you think about them both being under the umbrella of accountability, then right. which one right. what do you want gives to, you but, results that speak but the, to? But the, how? Sorry. Yeah, the goal of Common Core, and this is where I think a lot of people misin- are very misinformed about this. And and again, being someone that worked with people that developed these standards, the intent was to create these broad curriculum frameworks that prepare you to college. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in that goal, there's been a there's been a major disconnect mm-hmm. because it's been turned into a set of required national curriculum mm. standards and overreaching of government. Now, the difference with this is that because it is so supported, you start getting education funding tied to Common Core. So if you want, you know yes. what I mean? It's Which like, is why some there's some, some political so, pushback. Exactly. So yeah. state of yeah. Massachusetts, Commonwealth mm-hmm. of Massachusetts, 
you want some education funding, right. like you're going to have to follow Park. You're going to have to. So there's a lot of political hmm. problems. So I can understand Governor Baker's skepticism, but this is the problem with education reform in general: is that everything it when when you hear experiment, like. Yeah. That kind of freaked me out right now that the secretary – But I thought he was honest. He was honest. Yes. But I'm like yeah. when you have kids in the system, I have a middle schooler and a high schooler You're and you know my high schooler is three years <laughs> away from college and I start hearing curriculum experiment and I know a lot about education, I get a little bit – you know. Well, I, hopefully the, the experiment <laughs> is about which test yes. is best to report right. back accountability, not that we're not <clears throat> – we're shortchanging students in No, but my point them. being so, it's like, you know, you know – yeah, I Kids get, in I the get, system no, are get, being what you're experimented saying. right now. Uh, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me is Julio Ricardo Varela of the Futuro Media Group <laughs> and Latino Rebels, and Marcella Garcia, contributor to the Boston Globe. Uh, Marcella, you wanted to add something? Uh, no, I didn't. But okay. <laughs> I'll add something. No, I think I think that we have to take uh, uh, teachers' concerns. Absolutely. And again, Absolutely. It, again, if Massachusetts is in the position that everybody says we are, which we're doing very well, considering, um, then you know, I always think, well, if it's not broke, what are we trying to fix? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I'm not quite. That's my problem. So that's not that's quite my sure. concern. That's my concern it, is know. that <laughs> we're trying. We're hooking this up to funding. We're doing pretty well as a state. Yeah. yeah. And we might be dumbing down our own ri- standards because of money and funding right. and politics. So that's that to me is a problem. All right. And this is going to be a hot topic for some time because it just got started, as we said. So we'll yeah. be keeping an eye on that. All right. Moving on. Julio, you pointed out something that we've mentioned a long time ago on this show when you were here, and that is the uh, pe- peculiar position that folks from the islands, in particular Puerto Rico, in about being American citizens without the right to vote. And uh, comic John Oliver, whom some people may know from Comedy Central, his show is last week tonight, actually picked that up in a perfect timing situation, uh, jumping off of all of the, the 50th anniversary Selma celebrations. Those of you who know the Selma story, it's about, um, you know, African-Americans pushing uh, to get the Voting Rights Act in place with Lyndon Johnson. And uh, that happened 50 years ago. That's been celebrated everywhere. Great, great amount of triumph. And John Oliver pointed out something our own Julio Varela has pointed out before, which is mm-hmm. kind of interesting that we're celebrating Selma and patting ourselves on the back as Americans when there's a whole slew of Americans uh, who are not allowed to vote. So first, uh, let me kick it off with a little piece from John Oliver's last week tonight on voting rights for residents in the U.S. island territories. Yes, American citizens living in U.S. island territories do not get to vote for president. That's the kind of unsettling fact that deep down you probably knew but chose not to think about. Like the fact that the dog from Full House is definitely dead by now. (laughs) That that kind of thing. But but more than... You're proving my point. So, his point, Julio, and your point to us has been over time that a lot of people don't realize this. Right. And I want to be clear that the people living in these territories... Our citizens are serving in the U.S. military. Right. In fact, a disproportionate rate. Yes, highest number highest, of people yeah. you know serving are in place living in places where they cannot vote. Right. There's a couple of <laughs> things here. First of all, like I wrote a piece for uh, I wrote a piece for Quartz uh, Wednesday about John Oliver, and I started like leave it to a British dude <laughs> to like get it to Americans when you know people on the islands or on the territories of Puerto Rico and and Guam and America Samoa and the Virgin Islands and all these places were, have been saying this for years. You know, being with Futuro Media Group, 
Maria Hinojosa, we went, we actually went out to Guam last, you know, we interviewed, Maria went out and, and interviewed veterans. And people don't know that, you know, in, for example, in Guam, the rate of wounded and like dead veterans that died in combat is just, it's like out of control. And they have no veteran services on the island. They have to go to Hawaii, which if you know anything about geography, it's like, you know, thousands and thousands of miles away. In Puerto Rico, where I'm from, where I was born, you know, there's 3.8 million people that can't vote for president. Is it, do you think the issue is that people get confused because they know there's been a long for a push for statehood? Yes. And so the assumption is if yes. you're pushing for statehood, well, you must not be a citizen. Right. Exactly. Right. No, I think yeah. that there's a lot of there's I think the problem is also internally with Puerto Ricans who have made it a status issue as mm. opposed to what Oliver said and what I've written for years, it's more about an issue about equality. And that kind of opens up, you know, when President Obama spoke in Selma, he talked about, you know, our work, we still have work to do. I forget his quote yes, specifically. Mm-hmm. But in the sense of we we have to constantly strive for, you know, rights. And and what Oliver talks about is a really obscure court case a hundred years ago called the Insular Cases where the video went viral and it basically said, I mean, there was people, there were Harvard law, Harvard Law School lawyers that argued that we're not going to give rights to people that we've conquered. I mean, you know, the right. Spanish, because they're not Anglo-Saxon. You know, they're they are aliens. They're, they're yeah. aliens mm-hmm. and they're foreign and they're brown and they're not us. They're not white. And what's interesting about Oliver's video is that a year ago, Harvard Law School actually started having a conference called Reconsidering the Insular Cases. So there's a book coming out, like this week, Mm. coming out by Harvard University Press, talking about the very same insular cases that John Oliver had talked about in his video. And and both Oliver and President Obama compared, put it in the context of Selma. Now, Puerto Rico voting rights in terms of the history of, of... Achieving that nowhere near compares to to the tragedy and the violence and and the the heroism that happened in Selma during that time. But the principle that oh, Selma carries in the fact that you know I have family members that fought in Iraq. You know my stepmother's cousin, a uh, brother, went to Iraq and he, he did four tours, and he's suffering from PTSD, and he's living on the island of Puerto Rico, and he can't vote for the president that sent him to war. So right. I think there's a lot, you know, Americans, yeah. you know, Puerto Rico is no longer a West Side story after like, you know, John Oliver talks about this and they start seeing this connection and saying, oh, I get it now because and, John and that, said it. Yeah. So, Marcella, what will this do to raise visibility around this? What do you think? Oh, God, I don't know. I mean, again, thinking about Selma, it's it's um a movement has to happen. You know, mm. the, the people there need to start raising their voices. And, and the thing that struck me uh, about this, as John Oliver points out, is that there is a lawsuit. Uh, I think it was yes. by, by American Samoans or yes. is it by WOM? Mm. And the Obama administration is still taking that, that They're position. They're using the insular cases. Yes. Yes, and so crazy. even – it's crazy. That's so, the whole irony of this. Exactly. And so my point, my point being is that the current administration is not even, you know, taking – the right position here. And so that only leaves it up to them 
to to raise to the, point it out that, totally you know, but because I will remind people as students of history that when the Selma voting rights movement started, a lot of Americans assumed yeah, yeah. black folks could vote. Yeah, they, exactly. nobody. They, you know, so I'm that's the same you, assumption that you would. Yeah. if you're an American, you the, have the right to vote. And this when, is why know, the video went right. went viral because right. people don't know and are right. shocked. There's a shock. You know, it's shocking. It's absolutely shocking. And the more people know about it, that you know, the more awareness that there is. You know, the more people start thinking, oh, okay, but they're not going to do anything. You know, they're just going to be okay. No, I think we the, should give them. But, the but point, the point but, you I, made, but I think yeah. visibility is key to yeah. understanding something that's, you know, and just for people who might be thinking, well, what about D.C.? Um, there is a representative in the House of uh, for uh, D.C. residents, not in the Senate. But but D.C. residents can vote for president. Exactly. That's the difference. Now and in Puerto Rico, and, there's right. a resident commissioner in, right. and that it's the same thing as a D.C. representative who can't vote in Congress. But in also America, Samoa and Guam, they all have non-voting representatives. I believe the U.S. Virgin right. Islands as well. But that's the difference. In D.C., and, you know, there's a reason why when you do the elections, you know, right. oh, the primary from D.C., you know, exactly. got four votes. But I think the point that Marcella made about the Obama administration, there's there is a lawsuit Going on about from American Samoa, basically saying because you know, they're they're not citizens, right? Right, they're, they're and not, they're, they're using the, the Obama yeah. administration is using the insular yeah. cases, which as like, the example, right? So I'd like to also point out something <laughs> from the pre-Selma times, actually, and that is that the guy, the Supreme Court justice that wrote the insular cases. <laughs> Also wrote the separate but equal. Thank you. Oh, That's what my friend. Yeah, yeah, my friend really pretty. Yeah, my friend amazing. Andres Lopez, who yes. graduated from yeah. Harvard Law School, wrote a chapter in reconsidering the insular cases. That's and just amazing. Basically said yeah. that the same judge that wrote the insular cases wrote separate but equal. He was from Harvard, and and Andres, who's a good friend, says, you know, if we really believe in equality and what we represent. Like, we need to look at this with more, you know, with the lens of a Selma. Well, yeah, I really absolutely. hope that a movement comes out of this, you know, from the, the this U.S. territories, whether that's because I, I just don't see, I, I have to be cynical. Like, you God know, bless British comedians that have viral yeah, YouTube videos. I guess. But, well, you know, we're, we're, we're all ignorant until we know better. So, yeah, you know, true. however the message gets uh, sent, uh, I thought it was a brilliant piece of timing on his part to point oh, yeah. out the inequalities. Yeah, yeah. Um, given yeah he's an background. honorary Puerto Rican now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, moving on. Uh, someone in Hollywood is very unhappy with the fact that there are. I just have to talk about these media things with you guys because this just <laughs> blows my mind. Um, a piece in Deadline Hollywood by a, a, a Nelly Andriva. Uh, <laughs> The title, Pilots 215, The Year of Ethnic Castings, About Time or Too Much of a Good Thing. She goes on in uh, ad nauseum about how (laughs) there are, because there are many popular shows like Empire, uh, How to Get Away with Murder, Scandal, Blackish, Fresh Off the Boat, which, uh, and uh, Cristela, by the way. Yes. So we have. Latino casts, we have black casts, we have Asian casts, predominantly in all of these shows. Wow, that's forcing a lot of white people out of work, <laughs> which is, you know, As ridiculous if. on its face in terms of numbers. And then, Let's the, just next, do data. And then the next pilot season is going to get yes, more. It's, it's, it's just crazy. It's getting so, more ethnic. So the feedback has been properly slapped down for this woman. But it's most of the people who wrote, I'm happy to say, in just a comment section are like, what are you talking about? I, I, this is why I don't understand. I don't understand how this priest got green-lighted and published. Like, are people that... It just, I guess, it, it speaks to the lack of, 
you know, uh, in, in newsrooms and, and people making the decisions and, and approving this type of, of you know, content, who, what are they thinking? This is exactly how they think. And that's scary. It's offensive. It's insulting. It's absolutely And it's horrific. inaccurate. In terms it's of totally numbers, inaccurate. the data is wrong. About yeah. Which she's basing this. I know. know. <laughs> and so, I, you know, it, it's just like I, I, I was speechless. I, I, you know, at some point I thought maybe this is a joke. I, it's just absolutely horrible. But, but here's the thing about all of that, right? Let's put that aside because that was a ridiculous, you know, and everyone, you know, the roots written about it. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, yeah. Uh, the Axel Caballero, who's the, the director of the National Association of um, Latino Independent Producers, wrote for Latino Rebels a really scathing piece saying, like, what Marcel is saying. But let's put all that aside. The shows that you just mentioned, Callie, mm-hmm. let's read those again. We have Empire, right. How to Get Away with Murder, right. Blackish. Fresh off the boat. Scandal. Scandal. Mm-hmm. Christella. Christella. Mm-hmm. Guess That's what, it. people? <laughs> They're all successful shows. Really successful. <laughs> like, I don't want to say anything, but... The numbers. Like, yeah. from a, this is when you get the middle schoolers to watch Blackish and Fresh <laughs> off the boat. Like, that's what the kids are talking about right now. My yeah. son... Loves fresh off the boat, isn't it great? Because and that's the whole point. It's like you're talking about success. Because what have we been saying? What have people have been saying? If you provide authentic, diverse, real type programming, and it draws in everybody, draws in everybody. Yeah, and and even the empires of the world. Yeah, like it's fantastic that we finally have like a Dallas Dynasty type show. Where you, have, representative. where you have where you have African American actors have gone up that yeah. never happens every week. You know, as Empire. leads, as not as you know, being side the kids. heroes or side. You know, so that theory that everyone said, you know, if you do that, you're going to get more interest and more shows. In it's a, been proven. In a, for yeah. people who've not watched TV, Fresh Off the Boat is a, a sitcom based on the real life experience of Eddie Wong, who's a famed chef, right. and uh, it's comedic as it's supposed to be, but it really is. Hilarious and and tweaks a lot of the issues that we have yeah, in America yeah, in a funny yeah. way. Same thing with Blackish. Right. It's an African American family. Yep. Um, yeah. uh, it's just and Cristela, so Latino family. I mean, you know, these are experiences that everybody's and yeah. It's a, so so. My point about this piece is, if you're gonna write it, which is crazy, your data should be correct to begin right, with. Right. Right. So she started from a place yeah. of not having that. Yeah, I think you know. it was it was a piece that essentially is saying. We are threatened. We better do something about it. What the hell is happening? Da da da. And and, and again, to to your point about the data and and not not including you know the audience numbers, which translates into money, which mm. is all this this big money care about in a, dying, yeah. in a dying television landscape. Exactly, network it, television. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, gotta, yes. Who's yes. watching TV? Like right. I yeah. say this as a general thing. Like anyone who wants to know anything about the future of television. Like if you're not producing content for right. Latinos and Spanish speaking Latinos, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then you're you're failing because we're the last people that actually watch cable television and <laughs> right, television. Right. Like we actually go like, hey, what's and on Channel Six? And the movies, too. <laughs> exactly. And the movies. Right. So anyway, so I mean, if, if anything, I guess um, this, this should this should be like a wake up call to studios and say, you know, this this is the proof that you know we need to cater to this audience in an authentic and real way. Number one and number two, perhaps we're on, this, on our way to becoming or to getting rid of finally of the word diversity. And like Shonda Rhimes yes. said, who, who is the creator of Scandal and, uh-huh. and all these shows, you know, she Grey's said, Anatomy and, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She said, you know, I, I don't write diversity. I just write about what I know exactly. and what is my what, world. Right. What's what I exactly. see every day, which exactly. is, you know. Black people, Latino people, you know, people of every ethnicity. And it's the same about the media, too. You know, ethnic media. I I hate that term already. Like, 
uh, enough already. You know, how, how and this are, writer in Deadline wanted to make sure to say the word ethnic, ethnic. probably yes. about twenty times yes. in the comic. about a bit, right. a billion in an offensive <laughs> way. You know, it's just yeah. So, uh, well, I was I was rather pleased by people who self-identified as uh, non-ethnic, um, if you want to use that word, <laughs> saying they were just appalled. Yeah, they yeah. were appalled and just because they're watching deli- these shows too. Yeah, they're just like, what What are you talking about, lady? Yeah. I thought if you're going to write it. Um, and again, back to your point about greenlighting it, then there should have been a companion piece saying, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know, exactly. Which would have made sense. If there was an editor there saying, <laughs> okay, write whatever right. you want, then, then you know, offer some other perspective and say, right. But let me just put this out here in that in an age where, you know, Howard Schultz of Starbucks tried his best to get a conversation oh about God, race. Yeah. He did. You know, it keeps popping up where in places you least expect it or right. do expect it, and it, it's there. Yeah. And uh, these are discussions that obviously need to happen because this was, you know, on its face it just just wrong to begin with. And it wasn't even something that she could do an opinion piece about because she began with faulty data. Yeah. So um, hmm. other people are talking about it, and it's going to be a hot topic for a while, and uh, I'll be interested to see what happens yeah. as a follow-up to that. Yeah. But in the interim... Uh, I'm pleased to have discussed it with you two <laughs> and, and other things as well. <laughs> I love it. Yes. So thank you, Julio and Marcella. Thank, thank you, Kelly. <laughs> Marcella Garcia is a bilingual journalist and a regular contributor to the Boston Globe editorial and op-ed pages. And Julio Ricardo Varela is the digital media director for the Futuro Media Group and founder of LatinaRebels.com. Coming up, we're a couple of days away from the start of April's Poetry Month, helping lead the statewide celebration of all things lyrical, Boston's new poet laureate. We'll talk to her next. You're listening to Under the Radar. Callie Crossley. This is Under the Radar. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Famed poet Robert Frost wrote, Oh, give us pleasure in the flowers today, all simply in the springing of the year. It's no accident that spring is the season of poetry. And once again this year, poetry will take center stage across the state in celebration of April's Poetry Month. But for Boston's Poet Laureate, every month is a time to celebrate poetry. Daniel LeGros-George has been published in a wide variety of publications, including Callaloo, the Boston Globe, and the American Poetry Review. The Leslie College professor's own collection of poems, entitled Maroon, was published in 2001. And Danielle George joins me here in the studio to talk about her new role as an ambassador for poetry for the city of Boston. Welcome. Thank you, Kelly. So for people who don't know the role of a poet laureate, what is it that you do? Okay. Well, a poet laureate uh, typically is a poet honored for achievement and appointed by a government official who typically um, has as a duty the composition of poems for special occasions. Uh, the, The tradition began... Some people think back in the 14th century in Italy. Uh, The Boston Poet Laureate is tasked with raising the status of poetry in the everyday consciousness of Bostonians. 
um, serving as an advocate for poetry, language, and the arts in Boston, and creating an artistic legacy through public readings and civic events. So that is what I am tasked um, with doing, and I'm very excited about it. So when Mayor Walsh, Mayor Marty Walsh, appointed you uh, to this role, he said um, that he thought poetry was a way to tell the stories of Boston. And you agree, and you, you've you talked about the richness that's available, um, that you'd like to be available in the poetry that you write. Talk about that. It's complicated, Callie. Um, I think that... Um there are the stories of, of others, uh, all our stories, and then there are the stories we ourselves write. Uh, and I think that as Boston Poet Laureate, I can encourage people to write their stories, to see the stories of others in the poems that they read. I think art allows us um, to enter uh, experiences that are very different from ours, and poetry uh, especially, and reading poems in classrooms, reading poems uh, outside of classrooms in the community, um, gathering poems, um, writing poems, asking people uh, for their stories through poems is a way to do that. I think people have a very fixed um, um, image of what a poem is, and really to a larger degree what a poet is. So I think if you were just to go and grab people off the street and say, hey, do you like poetry? Most people go, no, because they're thinking some old guy, some complicated right. verse that goes on for 15 pages with right. a lot of words they don't understand and some complex meeting in the end that they never saw. And yet um, how you write and what the poets that I am hearing now on the national stage, I think about National Poet Laureate Robert Blanco, um, that's a whole different approach. Uh, disabuse people of the idea that poetry is all stuffy and boring. <laughs> yes, there is poetry that is stuffy and boring, but then there is poetry that really isn't. I like to compare poetry to music, right? There are different genres in music. There are different styles, traditions, approaches, philosophies, right? So in keeping with the music metaphor, you might like folk music, but not like classical music, right? You might like uh, jazz, but not... Might, not like rock. Um, if you're a, a classical music aficionado, you might like Dvorak and not Bach, right? Poetry is like that. So this idea that if you don't like one type of poetry, you're not going to like all types of poetry, I think is uh, perhaps one that we should uh, reconsider, right? Um, you don't have to like all poems, but there may be a poem out there that speaks to you. Uh, poets come in all Shapes, um, stripes um, come from different um, traditions, countries. They have different philosophies. And so I think poetry can, one can find poems that speak to one. And you, speaking of different experiences, you were born in Haiti and um, grew up in the uh, Haitian community of Mattapan. I think of Linda Dorsina Foray when I think of <laughs> that yes. neighborhood and that community, a very vibrant community in Boston. Yes. Um, as, as people may know, uh, the Haitian community here is one of the largest uh, in the United States. So how did how you grew up and um, how you lived in that community influence, if it did at all, how you uh, write and, and how you translate the world into poems? Well, um, I, I feel that uh, the Haitian... Well, Haiti is a country full of rich, rich in arts. Uh, and so uh, already I think I'm accustomed to... Or growing up, I was accustomed to having 
art around me, whether through theater, um, through poetry, through music, uh, and dance. So I think I already came preloaded or predisposed to to art and and to poetry. Um, I, as an immigrant young person, I had to make sense of uh, two cultures and then the the subcultures within each of those cultures. And I found writing a useful way to try to make sense of that world. And poetry, especially, I started writing as a teenager and wrote terrible teenage poems, as many people do. Oh, I did do. that. Which I'll never show you. <laughs> um, and then... Um, but but then those poems became more and more meaningful um, to me. And uh, so poetry was a space in which I could figure out things, was a space of inquiry uh, for me as an immigrant person. Uh, so that's, I believe, how poetry is connected to my, my younger self. Hmm. And you uh, embraced that experience when you did your inaugural poem uh, for Mayor Marty Walsh. I wonder if you would read that. Yes. <laughs> And while you're gathering your paper, let me remind people, I'm Callie Crossley. You're listening to Under the Radar, and my guest is Danielle LeGros-George, who is Boston's Poet Laureate, appointed by Mayor Walsh last December. Pray song for Boston. Begin with the Massachusetts, setting nets in the harbor of Boston before it was Boston Harbor, Conhasset, place of clear water, and arrive at my door. I, immigrant, Like so many settlers nestled in your arms, write this poem to you, Boston. If I write Tremont, it's for your hills, some still standing, others raised, the land changed, as lands are, as time passes. And yet history is yours, Boston, the good and bad of it, the inarticulated and the often stated, a Puritan's beacon, Wheatley's pen, Winthrop's city upon a hill, Walker's appeal to the colored citizens of the world, the vision and grandeur that are gardeners, the words lost to the gray and blue Atlantic. If I place an emerald necklace at your feet, it's to match the medallions of your ever-turning wheels, bicycles and school buses, the railroads and helms of trade of fate, of fire and grit, of determination's grip, of cotton beans, of your great house of science, and your great house of knowledge, and your great house of art. International since the day you were born, if cities are born, and if you're grown, then out of everything you have grown, a revolution spark, the arc of a wide bridge, cable stayed lit electric, wharves and new waves, and the complicated notions of freedom and forward, and the ease of summer days and sturdy neighbors, Chris, young terror of Sumner Street, Alana, eating a pear, already in third grade, John, but we call him Mac, Santiago, who yells louder than God, and Wendy, who yells louder, and Wayne, uncle to all, in his big yellow house, reading each newcomer to the neighborhood. That's my guest, Danielle LeGros-George, Boston's Poet Laureate, who was appointed by Mayor Walsh last December. And that poem she read at Mayor Walsh's State of the City Address in January. 
I should note that you have many awards for your work. I'm going to just read a couple of them here. The 2014 Massachusetts Cultural Council Artist Fellowship in Poetry, 2012 Massachusetts Cultural Council Finalist in Poetry. Um, you've got Lesley University fac- Faculty Development Grants and a 2013 Black Metropolis Research Consortium Fellowship uh, with Andrew W. Mellon Grant. So you've been awarded, you've been noted, and you've been selected by uh, Mayor Marty Walsh to uphold poetry in Boston and beyond and be that ambassador for it. Um, So how do you think April as a month to celebrate all things poetry helps you in that task? Well, April allows for wonderful readings to take place, wonderful activities to take place. Um, There is going to be on April 17th a reading in City Hall of the winners of the Mayor's Poetry Contest. It's a contest we um, put um, calls out for uh, early in the year, and Bostonians from all over the place send in poems um, with the hope that their poem will be chosen to appear on the walls of Boston City Hall. So we got poems from kids um, in high schools. There's a wonderful poem by a a Boston Arts Academy student that's going to be on the walls. A um, professor from uh, the economics department over at BU is, has a poem that's going to be up on the wall. Uh, uh, Barry Gaither uh, mm. has a poem that we've selected that will appear on the wall. So that's, that's a really nice opportunity to showcase the work of people who are writing in Boston, who, some of whom consider themselves poets and some of, them, some of whom don't consider themselves poets, but who are writing poetry. So um, there's that wonderful reading coming up. Um, I'm also going to be uh, reading at uh, the Massachusetts College of Art with a couple of other poets, uh, uh, Amaranth Borsak and uh, Maria Damon, uh, in a series, the Mass uh, Art Rights series. And uh, our evening is going to showcase uh, the work of innovative poets, and uh, Mm. I'm at I, I believe I'm being called an innovative <laughs> poet. Oh, that's good. <laughs> so that's wonderful. And I'm going to be looking forward to uh, hearing the work of other poets. Um, also, what I've been uh, I've been working on uh, in these past three months, uh, mm-hmm. some some um, programming, which we're beginning to um, put out into the world um, as of uh, as of April, and they include. Um, Poetry programming for older adults in Boston adult adult day health uh, programs and nursing homes. So I'm putting out a call to poets who would be interested in working with uh, older adults uh, who are interested in writing poetry. So there's plenty um, of opportunity all through the month for people to uh, really get a taste of poetry or embrace it as they will, depending on on their love for it. Yes. Um, you uh, took over the role of Poet Laureate after Sam Cornish, who held the role uh, for a number of years. I'm curious about what uh, which poets you admire? Yes, that's a good, that's, that's a good question. Sam Cornish, of course, I, I love his work. Um, there's a long list of poets I yeah, admire. Just give me a couple. Uh, Yusef Komenyaka, um, Wyslava Zimborska. Uh, there's a wonderful poet, uh, Afa Weaver, who teaches over at Simmons College, Martha Collins, uh, Lucille Clifton. Lucille Clifton's my favorite. Uh, I really <laughs> love her work. I must work. say, yes. I love, Yeah, I love the directness uh-huh. of it. I love the, its political nature. It's also um, uh, the quiet moments in those poems um, speak to me, too. 
Um, so these are a few of the poets whose work I really When you I make really the like. readings and the programs accessible, the whole thing is to make poetry itself as a form accessible to people and, 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 and sort of welcoming, if you will. Yes. I wonder how you feel about poetry slams that seem to have raised the visibility of poetry in a different way and attracted a different kind of audience, but yet one for poetry. I think they're wonderful. Mm-hmm. I think they're energetic. Um, there's great. Um, there are a number of venues here uh, in Boston, including the if you can speak it, if you can think it, you can speak it in uh, JP at the Milky Way. So uh, I think it's a wonderful way to have poetry exist, sort of in the air in the world. Yeah. Well, clearly you're one who loves it, and um, you teach it at Lesley College. You've been doing it for so long. It speaks to you. Make the case for poetry or people who are still saying, nah, I'm not going to hear that. Make the case. Well, <laughs> I think I think um, how I would make the case is to remind people of what they already know about poetry. Often the first poems we encounter are the ones that we are read to by our parents, our guardians, our teachers. They're nursery rhymes, right? So we know poems. Um, rabbit, rabbit, you've got a mighty habit running through the grass, eating up my cabbages, right? That's delightful. Twas brillig and the slithy toves, the gyre and gimbal in the wabe. Right? So we already know poetry. We hear poetry in some song lyrics. Like They're wonderful um, there are wonderful poems and lyrics. Not all song lyrics are poetic, but uh, but some are. Um, I also think that we uh, often reach uh, to poetry for uh, in moments of great pain and, and great loss. So so somehow poetry says things to us that other types of language does not. So I think poetry already exists in us, and I think part of my job as poet laureate is to remind people of what they already know about poetry and the poetry they already carry within themselves. Well, I believe you. I happen to love poetry anyway, but I think everything you said is right on. So I hope that people do turn out and support, and um, uh, great that you are Boston's face of poetry for the time to come. (laughs) That's wonderful. Thank you, Danielle, for joining me. Thank you. Danielle LeGros-George is Boston's Poet Laureate and author of the poetry collection Maroon. She is also a professor in the Creative Arts and Learning Division at Lesley University. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar. Join us next week at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed and including Lanyap, our Something Extra segment. In the meantime, you can find our show and links to stories we discussed today on the web at wgbhnews.org slash UTR. And listen again to the UTR podcast. Subscribe at iTunes. I'm Callie Crossley. Our engineer is John Parker. Abby Ruzica is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. WGBH.